Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening and thank you very much. It is my honor to welcome our guest for the evening, Ingrid Betancourt, a political scientist by training, educated largely in France and who spends uh, much of her time uh, where she also lives in Colombia and where she became a major political figure. She served as senator in the Colombian Senate, and then she was a presidential candidate in the year 2002. It was during the course of that candidacy and that campaign that she was captured by the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, the so-called FARC, on February 23, 2002, and held in captivity for more than six and a half years until the 2nd of July, 2008, when she was rescued in a daring raid. She has written for us a memoir called Even Silence Has Its End that is harrowing as a description of her experience in the Colombian jungle held by this terrorist group, the FARC. It is powerful in its detail. It's, it's extremely carefully written. It brings you into the selva, into the Colombian jungle with her, with all of the horror and the terror and the danger and the fears and the ambiguities of that experience. It is a book that comes across on many different levels. It is a personal account. It is a psychological and sociological analysis. It is a political document in ways. It is fraught with ambiguities and tensions, the deplorable conditions under which she lived in the Selva, and yet the beauty, the natural beauty of some elements of the a Colombian jungle, the kind of ambivalence in relations with uh, her uh, fellow captives and in some ways with her captors as well, the contradictions and the complications of living under such unusual circumstances for such an extended period of time. One prominent reviewer has likened this book to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago and said that it really stands apart as an account of the kinds of experiences that can occur under political captivity in modern times. Her book has now reached the New York Times bestseller list uh, as hardcover nonfiction. It has been simultaneously released in six languages. The book is a triumph. Ingrid Betancourt, welcome to the University of California, San Diego, and thank you for coming for this evening. This is a triumph. Now, let me ask you first, why did you write this book? I don't mean just why did you write a book. Why did you write this book in the personal way that you did write this book? Well, uh, I think when I was in the jungle, um, I was aware that once I would be out, it would be very difficult for people to understand what we had Lived. And I didn't want to give an abstract testimony of, of what we had gone through in the sense that, of course, you can put adjectives and say it was horrible, it was hard, it was painful. But I thought that it was important for people to just be there. I wanted people to be there with me. Um, the problem is that when I arrived back to freedom, I couldn't talk about it. 
I, I, I just couldn't say a word. Uh, I was with my children, with my mother, and I could see that they wanted to know, and I wanted to tell them, and I just couldn't. I was, the, the emotion, and still the emotion is very vivid in me, and sometimes I cannot control my emotions, but, but that, let's say that first year, was, it, it was impossible for me to just talk about that, what had happened. So I think it was a mix of, of reasons. It, it was first the need of giving testimony, the need of just sharing with my family what had happened, and also the, the, um, the impression that I needed to transform those years that I had lost, in a way, in, in something that wasn't... Uh, a negative thing in my life that I could just put it into something positive. Was it hard to write? Was it hard and difficult to relive all of those moments of uh, such terror and fear and anxiety? It must have been very difficult, to, almost like going back into the jungle again. It was very, very hard. Very, very, very hard. I mean, I didn't realize how hard it was in me until the first week I began writing. And, and then I thought I needed to just concentrate myself and, and, and isolate myself and eat well and try to, um, to manage and, and to pamper myself in a way after writing. I, I, I wrote in a place where... It was exactly the opposite of a jungle. It was, it was in the mountains, and, and I began in February, so it was white with snow, and I needed that. Because once I, I finished my day of writing, I needed to, to just look through the window and see that I was in some place else. How did you remember everything? Your recall is extraordinary. <laughs> well, recalling was not a problem. <laughs> not at all. I think that the problem for, for the hostages, for, for us, is to, to forget. We cannot forget. I think that, of course, there are things that, that I forgot. Of course, six years and a half are not in, in those pages. All cannot be there. But I think that there were events that had made an impact in me in um, emotionally, and that's what I wrote about. It, it's it's uh, the memory of emotions. Which episodes, or was there one episode or recollection that was especially difficult to live through? Well, the first chapter was very difficult to write because emotionally, I remember I thought, well, I had done a list of of situations and things that I remember that I thought had to be in, in the book. And I thought, well, if I can write about this, then I can write about everything. So that was the, the hardest to write, that first chapter. So the book is not chronological at all. It, it's also emotional. It's... It's how it was coming. 
Did you feel liberated when it was done? Was it therapeutic in a way for you? Well, it was, I, I didn't feel it was a therapy while I was writing it. I thought it was a torture. And, and, and really, I, I, I was talking with my fellow hostages, I would call them every day. And then I was kind of jealous because I would think they're doing their lives, they're, you know, they were remarried, having children. I mean, really redoing their lives. And I was stuck in the jungle. So I was like, I don't think this is really good. I had help, though. And, uh, you know, the analysis is, is important. So, so I think that now, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm liberated, and I think that now it really was a therapy, now that I've finished. The title refers to silence coming to an end. At one point in the book, one of your captors counsels you and says, you know, you better keep silent if you want to survive here. So there are different kinds of silences that you had endured during this period of time. Did writing the book end all of them? I mean, self-imposed silences as well as ones imposed by your captors and imposed by other situations? Well, when silence is an option and it's the best option, silence is great. But when silence is in order and it's imposed, it's, it's similar as dying, in a way. I mean, we are, we are beings of communication. That, that's what we are. We, we, we are the relationship we have with our surroundings and also the relationship we have with ourselves. But it has to be balanced. And when, by an order, they cut you from expressing yourself, um, that's very difficult. For, for me, the, the title has, it, it has several meanings. It, it was first, it's a poem of Neruda. And it's a beautiful poem of Neruda, which actually talks about him talking about what will happen to him after his, his death. And he says something like, um, but people will rec- recognize that it's me because of my words. And, and I think that what, what, I, what I wanted to, to tell with this uh, title is the victory with words. The victory over death, but also over torture, over, over um, captivity, over... And I think, truly, that words are magical. So it was a reassertion of self to write the book, I imagine. You describe efforts to escape. You never gave up wanting to escape. You came very close to escaping on one occasion. That must have been devastating to, to make the effort to get caught, to suffer reprimands, and then to go back and do it again. What kept you going? The idea of doing it again. Yeah. I mean, every time I was, I was captured... And I knew I was going to get into that horrible depression that comes with, with recapture. Uh, I was telling myself, next time I will succeed. 
Next time I will do it. It's a powerful story. One of the things, the themes that come through the book is what happens to people in captivity when they're all crowded together. One of the motifs of the book is a relationship with your fellow uh, captives. How did that unfold and what, what would you like to say about that? It was a very complex tale of, of uh, interconnections. How would you summarize that? Well, I, th- I think it's human nature. Um, of course, we all want to be heroes. And especially in those kind of conditions, you would like to be the hero. But you're not. You're just you. And that just you happens to, to all of the people around you. So we, we were, I think, submitted to very extreme conditions. Um, I, was, I was thinking, <laughs> to try to explain to you, today I was flying from New York to, to San Diego, and I was in coach. And uh, I was with a very limited space. But I was very lucky, because I had the row that is in the exit, so you have a little more space. And I thought, they're very clever. Because nobody will want that row with the exit and all the fuzz that comes with it if you wouldn't have a little more space. And I'm telling you this because space was the key problem in the jungle. I mean, we were forced to live on top of each other 24 hours a day. And some people have, you know, the idea that if you are together in, in, in the situation of being all hostages, you have to embrace and love and feel solidarity, which we did. We, we, we really became a family. But like in families, <laughs> you know, if, if the guy coughs when you're trying to sleep, if they snore, and, or, I mean, those kind of things happen in real life. I and mean, and, and in captivity, much more. Add to that the fact that we were surrounded with guards that wanted to divide us because they didn't want us to try to, to make an escape and to be united and, and, and rebel. So we were fed with all kinds of lies and of horrible comments of the others and in a very sneaky way. And we knew that. The incredible thing is that we knew that we were manipulated. But when you had a guy coming to you and being aggressive, even though you know that he's been aggressive because that guard told him that you said something or did something, he's been aggressive to you. You, you react in a way because you're, you're, you're hurt. You, you, and I think that's what happened. I mean, it, it was human nature. Right, so it magnifies the Magnified. implications of human nature. But there are two kinds of divisions that uh, struck me. One is some uh, of your fellow captors would sort of try to get along with the captors, kind of. It would be a temptation to try to at least, uh, if not earn their goodwill, at least get less harm and less punishment. And the other would be that because everybody was living under such tight quarters, that there would be a kind of natural competition over little things. 
scraps of food or space or whatever that that there would and, and that the captors would exploit these divisions because they would keep shifting the allocation of benefits so that they would keep everybody divided. Is that, is that an accurate summation of kind of how that came across? So yes. it was very complicated in the end. And then the Americans arrived. So what happened when the Americans arrived? These three uh, uh, contractor um, uh, Americans who were themselves engaged in uh, the drug wars in Colombia and that were, were captured by the FARC. The FARC, by the way, being very active in the drug trade. So how did that complicate things? Well, I think first they didn't speak the language. They, well, Tom, they, there were three of them. Uh, Mark, Tom, and Mark Keith. Mark Gonzalez, Tom House, and Keith Stenzel. Uh And when they arrived, well, we were in a prison in the jungle. Barbed wire, fences, very small space. Guards all around. And I think it must have been very frightening for them to just get in that. I mean, it was frightening to all of us. Entering to that cage was acknowledging that you would live in, in a concentration camp. I mean, I'm not talking about Auschwitz because it wasn't an extermination camp, but it was a concentration camp. I mean, concentrating people in one place and having them watched 24 hours a day. So it was difficult for us. It had been, I suppose, very difficult for them because they didn't know the language. And that was a barrier that made things more complicated. There were three. We were seven. Seven Colombians that had been in the prison before them. So they were entering to a space that was already colonized, in a way. Uh, We all had our bunk beds, we all had our space, and here they come and they don't know where to to stay, and there were no beds for them. So, of course, the first reaction was, how can, what's going to happen now? I mean, where, where are they going to sleep? There's no space here for more people. Um, so I think that when they came, it was stressful for everyone. And then we, we managed to, to just leave and get along and have good relationship, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But at the end, I really think we were a family. Well, I can see how this sudden arrival of this contingent of uh, uh, people from outer space, so to speak, would, would, be, would be very upsetting to a tightly knit community. Let me ask you about the captors. You, there are some streaks of ambivalence about, about the FARC, at least about different elements within the FARC. Early on in the book, you speak of the young people in the, in the FARC, and you often have a kind of a tender tone towards the young, um, both women and, and young men who, who serve in the FARC. You say early on that I observed the young people who held me prisoner, and I could not help but admire them. They didn't get hot. They didn't get cold. Nothing stung them. 
They displayed remarkable skill in any activity requiring strength and flexibility, and they moved around the jungle at three times my own pace, which would have been ten times my pace. The fear I had to overcome was made up of all sorts of prejudices. So how did you come to see the young participants in the FARC, and what kind of um, uh, picture of them can you give us now? Yes, I think you have to draw a line between uh, the FARC as an organization and the troop, the, the mostly adolescents, uh, young men, young girls. Um, because the reason why they end as guerrilleros uh, is, is the drama of their life. I mean, they are mostly peasants um, that had been living in the jungle. And in the jungle, the only thing that grows is coca. Because it's the only thing that is um, valuable enough to be uh, taken by plane and, um, and, and export. So here they are, living in the jungle. And in the jungle, there's nothing. Only jungle. There's no television. There's no radios. There are radios. Um, and they live in extreme poverty because what they make is only sufficient to buy what they need to continue working on what they're working. And it's a very hard work. Um, so when they turn to be 12 or 13, the option for, for the guys is to be a peasant and live in almost misery, or to um, get involved in, in the drug trafficking, or to, to become a guerrillero. For the girls, the options are uh, prostitution. And um, for them, being a guerrillero is, is an upgrade. It's a social upgrade. Because living in the jungle as peasants growing coca... Uh, make them subject to all kind of abuse from the military, from the police. Uh, it's a very violent environment. So if they have a gun, they feel they are respected and they feel they, they are better off. In the guerrilla, they have things that they don't have, like, for example, uh, a good, uh, steady... Um, food, S- supply of food. Normally, as peasants, sometimes they have, sometimes they lack. Uh, they will be always um, with clothes. Every year they will have new clothes, and that's something that, as peasants, they wouldn't have. So there are little things that for them are, are important because they lack of everything, and the guerrilla provides. I always thought what my children would have done if they had been born in the jungle. And that was a problem for me. Because I thought those kids could have been my kids. 
you used that phrase when you described your daughter's birthday celebration in the jungle. So FARC was started in the 1960s. It was a Marxist uh, movement that was dedicated to land reform and social justice. You describe the leadership now as, as gangsters in one phrase. And, of course, they're very active in the drug trade. At one point it was said that they, FARC produced half of the cocaine that left Colombia for export. Um, what happened to the leadership? I mean, why are, are they just thugs in business now? Well, you see, the, normally we, we say that uh, the end justify the means. I think really what happened is that the means shape the end. The, the guys were in the 60s, probably, I think, they were revolutionary with a political uh, project, with a, a program, with ideals. But I think that in the 80s, when, when they began financing themselves with uh, drugs, they ended up being drug traffickers. And, and it, it shows in the way they behave. Um, the FARC, what I could see from the years I was living with them, uh, is, a, is a hierarchy, a military hierarchy, but of privileges. And, and the commanders that have access to, to, to the product of, of the coca production that lives and finance uh, their war with, with that money uh, are now, I think, um, caught by, by the way they're living. And I think that today the FARC is an organization that wants to protect the way they live because those commanders have lots of privileges. And I don't think that even getting the power in Colombia would give them as much as they have as individuals in that organization and with that financing. It's, it's not only the money, it's the power over, over the people in the te- territory that they uh, dominate. And that feeling of power is something that is, I mean, changes the mind of people. I don't think those guys today would be willing to sign a peace agreement because a peace agreement wouldn't give them anything better than what they have. What would be the end for them? To do politics in Colombia? I don't think that's something interesting for them. They don't have a political project. I try to, to talk about politics with them and even with the commanders, and they just don't... They're not curious about how make the things work better in Colombia. For them, it's eating better, having toys, having the most beautiful women, and having power. And it's very basic, but that's it. Well, you said you thought they would not accept a negotiation or agree to a negotiation. Um, 
One of the themes in the book has to do with negotiation. And I'll put it as a question. What is a government to do if citizens are taken hostage? If it negotiates, then it, it is said, provides an incentive for more hostage taking because then there will be more release or exchanges and more benefits. If they don't, of course, the hostages remain hostages. Uh, this is obviously a great dilemma. Um, what, what, what should a government do? And how did the Uribe government um, respond to this situation? And whatever the Uribe government did, do you think the FARC would have agreed to some settlement? Okay, of course, the, the way I will answer this question is very biased. I mean, uh, I think that when a government faces a hostage problem, they have to get the hostage out, no matter what. I mean, it's a problem of the social contract. When, when you accept to live in a country under a state with laws and rules and things, and you pay your taxes, the deal is that you will be protected. That's why there is a state. If you're not protected, then the contract is over. So you need that protection. And the responsibility for, for the government is to have you back. And safe. So that means that my first option would be negotiating. Because for me, negotiating is, I mean, you have to negotiate to have your people back. It doesn't mean that you won't confront the kidnappers with all the force you can. And because once you have your hostage back, you need to put those people in jail. So I don't see the contradiction. I mean, sometimes they tell you you cannot negotiate because it will be an incentive for wrong. The incentive for is the impunity. That's the incentive to doing it again. It's not having hostages. Now, that's theory. In practice, uh, in Colombia, I think that the guerrilla came to a point where they didn't want to negotiate us. So even if the government would have wanted, which he didn't, uh, I don't think the guerrilla would negotiate us because for them it came to, 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 to a stage where having us as hostages, as trophies, as instruments for their propaganda was more important than negotiating us for what they were telling everybody they wanted to negotiate us, which was trading us for guerrillas caught in jail. Uh, I think Uribe um, did a, a smart thing in the sense that, well, I wish he would have done it before, of course. Six years and a half is very, very long. But um, they come up with this operation, which was incredible. It was a perfect operation. 
in the sense, what is incredible in that operation is that it didn't put the hostage at risk. And it was a very difficult equation to solve. How to get there, how to bring us back without putting the hostage lives at risk. And I think that really the, the soldiers that came to rescue us are the are the, the heroes of modern times because they were the only ones that were, were risking something in that operation. Right, this is known as Operation Checkmate. It's the operation that liberated prisoners in July of 2008. Um, one of the harrowing details for me reading the book was your description of the reaction of the then U.S. ambassador speaking to your mother saying that the hostages are like terminally ill patients, that we don't negotiate and we're simply going to ignore them. You also say at a couple of points that the uh, Uribe administration, of Alvaro Uribe, who won the presidency in the campaign that you took part in, that they also were not very interested um, because you say that by condemning the, you and your fellows to oblivion, the Colombian authorities were throwing away the key to our freedom. In years to come, the government's strategy would be to let time pass, hoping that our lives would become less valuable, forcing the guerrillas to release us without obtaining anything in return. We were being given the heaviest sentence that could be inflicted on a human being, that of not knowing when our captivity was end and the future was dead. And you would at another point say the Colombian establishment wouldn't lift a finger. Is that... Because of you, because you were a whistleblower and, and you were an opposition politician, or because this was the strategy to simply let to de- devalue the, the hostages as a group until finally something would happen. Do you really think that's what they were thinking? Yes, I truly believe that. Okay. Yeah, I really, 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 truly believe that they that was a strategy to just. And it was a strategy that was politically correct at that time in Colombia. I mean, the population, or the majority of the population in Colombia, thought that we had to be sacrificed. Because, for the same reason you were pointing earlier, that it was important not to talk with the guerrilla, not to um, accept their blackmail, but also uh, it was important to um, avoid any negotiation that could give more power to the FARC. So the, the, the decision as a society, and I heard it many times, not only in the government, not only in officials, but in you know, journalists talking or commenting or, or people... Um, talking in the radio, and they would say, we have to sacrifice the hostages today to avoid having more hostages tomorrow. Which, by the way, is the most horrible thing that, I mean, you can, you can even think. Because, I mean, what are the hostages tomorrow that don't exist? I mean, it's a fake, it's an illusion. And you're just condemning people for, for an illusion, when, when what you have to do is what you have to do to get after them. To, to, well, it was very damaging psychologically for all of us to hear that when we were 
in the jungle. And you know what I think that is incredible? Is that, that sometimes I think that the FARC is really, really the, the, uh, the yin and the yang of, of Colombian society. Because after a while, they were all thinking the same thing. I mean, the FARC didn't want to negotiate us because we were the, the trophy. And, and the government didn't want to negotiate us because whatever reason they had. And the society didn't want to negotiate us because all the reason they had. So <laughs> there was no option for us. And I would guess also that because there was a logic, however perverse to this situation, it would be even more devastating because you couldn't just say everybody was crazy. Everybody had a logic behind their But position. It's a very inhumane logic. Nobody at that time thought that we were suffering, that we were human beings, that it could be their mother or their children or their husband. No, it was just, it's not my problem. It's not my family. They have to be sacrificed. So what led them to do Operation Checkmate, do you think? I think the conditions changed. Thank God. The conditions changed. And all the... I think that this game that we're playing just, you know. The first thing that changed was the pressure uh, of the public opinion. Little by little, people, because it was so long, that people began thinking, wow, are they still alive? I mean, there was this kind of, you know, we had forgotten them for four years. Are they still alive? And then there was this pressure in Europe, you know, all the time. People manifesting and, and gaining support. And then Chavez came in the picture. Over Chavez came in the picture. And he said, okay, I want to help. I want to do something for the hostages. And I think that Uribe, because he knew the FARC didn't want to negotiate, none of us, he's might have thought, this is speculation, mere speculation, I, excuse me, because I don't, I don't know if this is true or not. But that's what I have in my mind. I suppose that perhaps Uribe thought, let's permit Chavez, he will burn himself in this horrible mess. Let's, he will do something, but I mean, he will burn But Chavez had contacts with the FARC, and he could do the, the, the thing. And then he liberated first three of us, Clara, Consuelo, and the baby, and then five of us. And then I think it became a problem, a political problem, because what if Chavez could succeed in liberating all the hostages, and especially the Americans? I don't think Bush wanted that. Not at all. And Sarkozy, at the same time, the French uh, president, was also getting into the, the dance. And he was saying, oh, come on, Chavez, yes, help us to bring them. And now it wasn't only Uribe and Bush and Chavez, now it was Sarkozy, and it came to be like a problem for, for many people, for many uh, countries. And it became internationally uh, known and there was this awareness of what was happening. 
And I think that shifted the, the situation to the point where I think there was then a race. Who's going to have them first? God bless that race. <laughs> Let me, did this whole experience change your politics? I mean, did you, uh, you say at some point that, you know, uh, you began to appreciate the military more because, after all, they were more or less on your side at that point? And I wonder if any of these other dynamics um, had an effect on your own political views? Yes, of course. Uh, to the point that I don't want to get into politics anymore. <laughs> so it really affected me a lot. Um, yes, I have another way. Let's say that my analysis of what happens in Colombia is, is different. Very different from when I was uh, campaigning. And, in, 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 you know, I think that... God, I believe in God, so God does things right because I think that I'm so glad that Uribe won that presidency and it wasn't me because I think that he was right in, in the sense that the only way to confront these guys was uh, with the military. One of the other relationships that's interesting in the book is your relationship with yourself. You struggled with yourself, you analyzed yourself, you discovered or rediscovered uh, religious faith, and you spoke often of changing your person or having to change your person. As you look back on that, um, can you tell us um, more about those alterations? You speak of the need for humility. You at one point say God wasn't ready for you to have freedom because he or she had more in store for you. That's... That's heavy stuff. Yeah, I thought it, it was heavy. To you thought it was heavy then? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that uh, abduction is a situation where you lose your identity. Without freedom, you just lose your compass. Because we are the choices we make. And once we cannot make any choice of daily things, then the question is, who am I? Who, what's the rest of me? What is left of me if I cannot decide even to whom I speak or what I eat or when I go to sleep or when I wake up? I mean, we, have, we make constant decisions small decisions all the time and that's shaping our the way we are it's how we are once you don't have that you, you lose who you are so of course for me the question was to answer that question now that I don't have anything now that I've lost everything I remember vividly the moment I was um, in, in this new site and they had chained me uh, by the neck to a tree. That was the usual. It had been going on for three years. And my companions were under a tent. And there was this powerful tropical storm. 
And I asked if I could just shelter with my companions under the tent. And the commander denied my request. And then I was there waiting for, you know, the rain to stop. And I was cold and I was, of course, feeling very, very bad. And then I wanted to go to the toilet, which, of course, in the jungle there's no toilets. But at least you can go behind a tree and do what you have to do without everybody looking at you. And when I asked, the guard uh, told me that I had to do whatever I had to do in front of him and in front of everybody. That was very, very hard because you, it comes to a point where you don't really control your body needs. And it was very humiliating. And I thought, okay, I've lost everything, everything. But I haven't lost the most important freedom of all, which is to decide what kind of person I want to be. And I won't be what they want me to be. It was very rebellious, but it was my, my answer. And one of the things I didn't want to be was a woman filled with hatred. Because I could see what hatred had done in them. And I didn't want to become like that. I had this... Um, well, I had been with many groups in the jungle, different groups of adolescents that shifted. And the very curious thing was that they all had the same pattern of behavior. It always was the same. It didn't... I mean, regardless of the conditions we had or how big the group of hostage was or whatever, the pattern was always the same. They would begin when they would come and the first time we would meet, they would be respectful and kind sometimes. And, and trying to be helpful and decent. But as the weeks would go by, you could just see the degradation of the behavior. And it would come to a point where those children would become monsters. Sadistic behaviors, cruel, humiliating. And I would have the most hard time to just remember how they were at the beginning because they were so nice at the beginning and so horrible afterwards. So I had to think, what happens? Why is it always the same thing that happens? What am I doing wrong? Is me that is triggering this kind of reaction? Or what is, what is happening here? And then I come to the conclusion that there were, when some conditions were met, the, 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 the cruel thing in you, because I really think that in each human being there is a good and a bad, and we all have it inside. But the bad is controlled. It's like with a padlock. But sometimes, when some conditions are met, this thing opens, like the Pandora box, and, and the monster is unleashed. And it could happen to all of us. And what are those conditions? Because I think that's something we should you know, be aware of. 
when you have more power than somebody else, it could be authority or physical power. In this case, they were armed. When you don't have witness, when, when you're alone, when you don't have anybody looking at you, when you have the impression you're, you're doing something right because you're, you have an order or there's a hierarchy or you feel that what you're doing is what you have to do or in a way you can feel that you're not responsible for what you're doing and when you have peer pressure when, when you think that people are expecting from you a behavior then you can became, become a monster you, you can turn yourself into a horrible person and I think that this is something that doesn't happen only in the jungle It happens in the families. I think that's one of the reasons why your book reverberates so much, that it touches us at so many deep levels, that we can see ourselves and our families and our societies in those same situations. Let us conclude, Ingrid, by reading the very end of your book. It's very powerful. The book is full of wisdom and self-awareness, increasing self-awareness and uh, learning and words for us all. As you greet your mother when you're finally released after Operation Checkmate, you say you descended steps slowly to have time to admire her, to love her better. We embraced with the energy of victory, a victory that we alone could understand, because it was a victory over despair, over oblivion, over resignation, a victory solely over ourselves. I will ask you to read the rest. My companions, too, had disembarked. We looked forward with our arms around each other's shoulders, as happy as children, on clouds. I felt with a shiver that everything was new. Everything was dense and weightless at the same time. And in the explosion of light, everything had disappeared, been swept away, emptied, cleansed. I had been born once again. There was nothing left in me but love. I fell to my knees, looking ahead to the world in front of me, and I thanked the heavens for everything that was still to come. Rebettencourt, thank you for your time. Thank you for your visit. There's several questions about children and young people. As you perhaps see young people in the audience or speak to young people in general and think of your own children living in the world in which they will be living, uh, what would be your most crucial advice? most essential advice to young people about managing and surviving and improving the world in which we live? Wow. Tough question. Well, I am surprised with the world I encountered after freedom because it's different than the one I left. And there are things that I don't like too much about this world. 
I think we have become with all those little toys that we have um, very uh, distracted on things that are not important we have lots of toys and uh, we spend lots of time in exposing ourselves to the others in selling ourselves in presenting ourselves my advice would be not to lose the contact with your soul I think there's a discipline that is a good one which is to devote some time during the day to think about our emotions about our attitudes about our feelings and to try to tune them with the image we have of ourselves because sometimes we don't act as we should and, and sometimes we don't want to see that we're not proud of how we act and I think that if we do it on a daily basis it helps because the tuning with the soul is in details it's not in the big decisions it's not in who I'm going to marry or what is my career going to be the relationship with the soul is in did I say thank you enough did I did I pay attention to the person that needed me to to listen to that to her did I um, was generous of my time or of my space little things especially with the ones we love that are always at the end of our list that would be my advice thank you very much You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.